Well, hello, greetings and welcome. Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. And as we've been doing for several podcasts now, we're including a couple of news items from the world of Agile as it is a very active universe and we want everyone to stay current. How to pick the right Agile tool. According to a recent survey, the percentage of companies embracing the Agile movement have surpassed those using Waterfall and the percentage continues to increase. The popularity of Agile has spawned a plethora of Agile project management tools designed to manage and direct the performance of Agile teams. With so many offerings to choose from, the issue is not whether there's a tool that can enhance your organizational performance, but how to select the right tool for your needs. Now, if you want to know what some of these tools are, you can go to this news item, which is on smartsheet.com. There's a link posted on Ren's website. Should you choose Agile or Waterfall? Well, depending on your software development needs, complexity of the project, and the team size as well as client involvement, you can choose the Agile software development methodology that is best for you. It's important though to make the methodology choice correctly right at the start for smooth streamlining of processes and completion of the project on time. That's a blog post about software and project methodology that was posted on growthhackers.com. Keep Austin Agile. Agile Austin hosted its fourth annual Keep Austin Agile conference in late May of 2016. This one-day event offered various tracks for education and networking in a very relaxed environment in downtown Austin. There's a link for all of the presentations that were done at the Keep Austin Agile conference that you can find on Ren's website, which is www.renmelberg.com. Now in the interview segment with Ren, she is going to be giving us a brief history of project management here on the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. Well, this week during the interview segment, we swing back to the world of Agile to know where we are in terms of current project management methods and where we're headed. There's no better way to learn that than to review where we have been with a brief review of the history of project management. And when historically, there have been plenty of big projects like the construction of the pyramids, the transcontinental railroad, the Manhattan Project, the salt vaccine, and even going to the moon. What do those historic projects all share in common? Well, they're really huge, and they're all very successful. But as far as project management, I mean, uh, we don't really know. There's a lot of theories around the construction of the pyramids. But we know, like, for the Transcontinental Railroad, the Manhattan Project, um, the Salt vaccine and other vaccines, um, those are very um, scientific driven projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of experimenting and check the results and see how that did, learn from it, go to the next one, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the Transcontinental Railroad, they routinely would send horses back and forth between the ends of the railroad to check to make sure that they were still evolving in the same way. 
Oh, wow. And they were actually going to meet each other where they were supposed to or near where they were supposed to. I should say near because they didn't actually meet exactly where they originally planned, but they were awfully darn close. And the important part is they met and they could connect the tracks, right? Yes. And so you have these huge endeavors that got broken down into smaller bits for execution. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think we can successfully or honestly say that about all of them, right? Um, They didn't, for instance, in the Transcontinental Railroad, they didn't start on one side of the country and build it all the way across. No, no. No. They started in two different places and met kind of in the middle. Right. Um, And so they definitely had two separate efforts going at the same time um, to come together and, and achieve this very huge goal. Right. And, you know, um, as I sit here thinking about it, you know, the pyramids, that's not carved out of a single rock, I don't think. So. No, no, not at all. <laughs> and, and the rocks were sourced from different places right. at different times, et cetera. So, yeah, those are, those are fairly iterative as well. Right. So moving closer to the present day, it was in the 1950s that modern project management techniques began to evolve. What were a couple of those? Well, I mean, basically, it's it's kind of interesting because when they started looking at these larger projects, right, they were thinking a lot about staging and how do you make sure that if we're doing our part B, A, that B is ready to take it when, when it needs to, et cetera. So they looked a lot, by the way, at construction. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And they said, how does construction do this? Because large-scale developments are not new. No. Um, some of the, the first mass development projects, you know, like today we think of those McMansion cul-de-sacs, right? Yeah, right. Where they build a dozen houses all at the same time. That's mm-hmm. not new. Um, the really big housing projects like that started just after the Civil War. And that would be required careful planning. Mm-hmm. to make sure that you had the masons in there at the right time relative to the plumbers, relative to the guys who are going to put in the gas heating and lighting, relative to the guys who are going to close up the walls, relative to the people who are going to paint the walls, etc. right? right. <laughs> so yeah. It's a lot of coordination. And when we look at early project management, that's what they took from, a lot from construction. And it's a lot of pre-planning, Mm-hmm. A lot of upfront design, and then the rest of it is all about coordination. Right. So it wasn't totally waterfall at this point. You know the right. way we think of waterfall now. Right. right. Fairly, but fairly close. Okay. Because once they started these um, developments, and once they started doing these um, large IT projects, they didn't really deviate very much mm-hmm. from that original plan. Good or bad. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. They, right? They really didn't deviate from the original plan or the original design. Yeah, that's true. Um, very little in the way of uh, any kind of deviations or changes. Now, I got to ask you about um, an acronym called PERT, which I had thought was... Um, 
a hair care product from the 1960s, but <laughs> it stands for a program evaluation and review technique. How does or did the PERT chart possibly relate to the Kanban board, if at all? They don't terribly, right? Okay. Because, because, you know, so you think about that orchestration piece that I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. That's really what the PERT chart's trying to do is visualize, give you a visual representation of that orchestration. Okay. And there's other outcomes that came out of it later that evolved out of it. But that's really what they were trying to do. It's about staging. It's about lining up the work mm-hmm. and making sure that we have, you know, people when we need them, but not before, not after, mm-hmm. but when we need them. Um, where the Kanban is, is about watching the work go all the way through its process beginning to end. Okay. Um, and it assumes a single linear flow. PERT does not. So if you look oh. at some PERT charts, they're very complicated, um, and, they're, and they'll make your eyes cross. Yeah. <laughs> like if you did a PERT chart of building, you know, like I gave the example of 12 houses in a cul-de-sac, mm-hmm. that would be a pretty daunting PERT chart, right? Boy. But if you had that on a Kanban, it'd actually be very linear, and you could see exactly where you were and what needed to be done next. I love linear. <laughs> I love straight-line thinking, so... Hooray for the Kanban. (laughs) The 50s also saw the advent of the Critical Path Forward, or CPF. And Mm -hmm. from the looks of it, it has some of the elements that are also found in Agile, including timing for planned activities, working in parallel on related activities, and analysis tools that allow a user to select a logical endpoint in a project and quickly identify its longest series of dependent activities or what they say its longest path. So is it possible that I'm right in concluding these similarities exist or is it just a coincidence? Well, the critical path comes from PERT. Okay. They, They came directly out of that. So part of what the PERT analysis did for you is it told you um, where your greatest risk was. Which one of those paths through the process was your greatest risk? That became known as your critical path. Okay. And it could have been any number of reasons, right, right. on the PERT chart. It could have been because of complexity. It could have been uncertainty. It could have just been timing. It could be work effort. There could be different reasons why that was a critical path. Hmm. When that got pulled out of PERT and started to to migrate towards what we now call waterfall, mm-hmm. that critical path forward just became about time. Okay. What is going to take us the absolute longest to get done out of everything we need to get done? And the goal was then to synchronize the other work against that critical path so that you all complete it together. Well, there's a problem with that. We don't always all have to complete together. Okay. And there weren't built-in checkpoints to make sure that we were all still going in the same direction. And so we get design inconsistencies and incongruities and we'll be able to integrate things and blah, blah, blah. So you get the the eastbound part of the Transcontinental Railroad is a mile away from the westbound. Boy. At the end, you got a problem. Yes. Boy, right. Yeah. 
So as far as, you know, some of the things that you identified, yeah, there's some similarities, but there's some pretty huge differences uh-huh. between a critical path and agility. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, that's why we ask these questions to make sure that it's just not, you know, right. Harold's imagination. And so much of so much of our questions are yes, <laughs> right? right? It does have some similarities, but it also has some pretty big differences. Absolutely. Uh, it's not a not a black and white answer or not a black and white discussion. No. Definitely some overlaps, and you can see how that thinking mm-hmm. contributed to agile thinking mm-hmm. later on. Mm-hmm. But you can also see where there are differences and how that also contributed to agile thinking. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely right. Now, in the 1970s and even into the 80s, there was more emphasis on front end or or the front end of projects. Was that kind of the start of an evolution towards sprints, or is that just another artifact of my imagination? (laughs) I really wasn't thinking about sprints yet. What was happening is at the end of projects, especially, so we know that most projects, traditional projects, are deemed a failure in Mm -hmm. some way or another, right? And that just means that at the beginning of the project, we said, here are the two or three things that we want. And at the end of the project, we didn't get all of those two or three things. We may have gotten some, but we didn't get all. So it's actually kind of a high standard that we put on projects when you think about it yeah. um, because it assumes some degree of perfection. So let's be nice about that. Yeah. But what was going on with this is at the end of those projects, they were asking themselves, why weren't we successful? God damn it. What do we mm-hmm. need to do differently next time so we are successful? And what these very smart people came up with is we just need to be smarter people at the beginning of the project. Okay. And so they thought that if they did more upfront planning and more upfront design, and for instance, that we did more stakeholder reviews of our business requirements, Mm -hmm. then we would be able to foresee these bad things that happened throughout the project and avoid them. Mm -hmm. And then our projects would be more successful. What it also assumes, though, and this is where they kind of got themselves into trouble, because I, by the way, to a degree, did work. Mm-hmm. Better design, better from planning, to a certain degree, did work. Okay. The problem is there's there's a use-by date, <laughs> if you will. It right. will go bad after a certain point, right? Okay. Analysis ages because we can only see so far into the future. And design ages because we can only see so far into the future. And so those things, we'd have these great, brilliant ideas, but our ability to predict into the future is only about six months. Yeah. And so if the project went longer than six months before it fully utilized that planning and design, then it aged and changes happened in the business or changes happened in the environment or changes happened in the system. And that great design Mm -hmm. doesn't really totally apply anymore. Uh There's gaps in it or it's, you know, like it's missing something. Or something's changed and it has to be redesigned and there wasn't a mechanism to do that. 
And so to some degree, that upfront, you know, the front end stuff mm-hmm. did help, but it mm-hmm. didn't completely solve the problem. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I want to um, be there and the suggestion box gets opened and the suggestion is hire smarter people. That uh, I unfortunately have been in those meetings. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, we can't hire clairvoyants, okay, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh, yeah, H- hire, uh, hire clairvoyants. That's another good one. Okay. So <laughs> another, another historic artifact from the 1980s was an additional focus on external factors and how mm. they affected a project. So I think some people called this interface management. Mm-hmm. And... Since I haven't guessed right so far, this might be related to frequent feedback that's so prominent and agile. <laughs> you haven't guessed wrong not. either. <laughs> <laughs> and again, yeah, there are definitely aspects of it that totally contributed to our agile thinking. So some of the stuff that we really think about how we organize the work. Mm-hmm. Remember, we've, we place a lot of emphasis on increasing productivity. But uh, excuse me, predictability and productivity, but predictability by reducing risk. Mm-hmm. And the risk that we look at the most in Agile really kind of comes from this thinking um, are dependencies. And identifying what are internal dependencies, which means our our Agile team can resolve this dependency, we can manage this, mm-hmm. and external dependencies, which we are dependent on someone else to resolve this dependency. Okay. So that is that. That definitely has flown flowed through to agility. Um, it's just that how it was used in traditional project management is a little different because they're not checking in routinely. Um, it tended to be kind of front loaded again. Mm-hmm. So you would identify all your external dependencies up front. You would put together a mitigation strategy up front. Mm-hmm. And then you didn't look at it until you ran into that dependency. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, and, that, and that's not how it was designed. That's just how it normally wound up working. Okay. Because the project managers were so busy with everything else that they, you, you couldn't just sit there and manage your dependencies all the time. Okay. That also makes sense. Um, yeah. Now, project managers, now you realize what a tough job they have. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, just a few things we talked through and all the things that were the moving parts that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You just you, we should all just take a deep breath and go, holy crap, that's a that's a tough job. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a tough, tough job. Um now the perception of project management as a as a formal methodology and discipline began based on what I've seen in the nineteen nineties with the advent of PMI, was mm-hmm. that a watershed moment in the history of project management? I think so, because what PMI had, had done, um, a lot of different organizations were doing it. Mm-hmm. It just, for one reason or another, PMI was perceived or was. I've never actually done assessments. I don't feel comfortable saying they were better at it. Mm-hmm. But they definitely came out on top. Okay. Right. And we're the ones that every that everybody still and I was I was at one time TMI certified, so you know okay. <laughs> that's who we went for. Um, because they had brought together, coalesced together, um, 
a really great set of best practices. Okay. And so if you're going to do this, here's the here are a bunch of best practices to help you do it really well. And I know from personal experience, um, it doesn't work. It can work, I should say. It doesn't work in every instance, but it can work. Okay. And, and, and that's why people still do it. I mean, they don't do PMI in, in particular because it's the most common traditional project management methodology out there, right? right. You don't do it because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's stayed and they don't want to change. They do it because mm-hmm. to some degree it does work. Okay. There are as, aspects of it that do meet organizational needs. And so that shouldn't be discounted. Hmm. And there are project managers who successfully delivered projects. I know I did. Sure, of course. Right? And so I know for a fact, I know other project managers who, you know, here are the things we agreed at the beginning of this project we were going to do, and and here's how we did, and guess what? This is being successful. Hmm. Right? So um, there are aspects of it that work. There are organizations that work. There are people who can who know how to work it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's really why PMI, I believe, has been success- successful. And it is a huge watershed moment. You're right. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, good. That makes one. So, hooray for me. Um, <laughs> that's more than one. You haven't gotten any of them wrong. Got okay, that, well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> good. Now, in the 90s, you know, the internet became a tool for business. And... um it seems like the demands for programmers and coders that were going to be involved with the internet was that the real advent of of agile. There's some debate: is was it the internet or was it Y two K? Okay. Um, and I'm like, in my opinion, you're splitting hairs because they really kind of happen at the same time. Well, that's true. That's right. Um, and also at the same time, we had a very significant change in how regulators were auditing regulated companies. Mm-hmm. So you think of that 1997-1998 area in particular, so the beginning of Y2K, the internet was really taking off now. It was more than... AOL and adult programming. People mm-hmm. were buying things online, right? <laughs> Almost 20 years ago. Um, pretty darn close to 20 years ago. Um, we also had a significant change on how we were being regulated. Mm-hmm. And it no longer was the inputs and the outputs of your technology, but it was your technology itself. Okay. And all these things happened in this very short three to five years. And the demand on organizations to deliver a lot of work into their technology stack in a very short period of time and almost constantly delivering really forced these changes. So um, I know for where I was sitting, it was we were first... um, it was iterative de- development methodology. Then it was rapid development methodology, yeah. right? And you know, which is also kind of a rub and the other very similar thing. All of those evolved into what we now call agile. But it was the same kind of need of these long, multi-year projects mm-hmm. can't work for us anymore. We have too much that we need to get done. Mm-hmm. 
we need much shorter delivery cycles. So how do we continuously shorten that cycle? Right, right. And and that that's in my opinion, and I'm not a historian, but just having living lived through that era, that's sure. what it looked like to me. Is that we had this in in definitely in the role I was in at the time, or roles I should say, um, we were constantly needing to deliver more and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter cycles, and the questions were how are we going to do that. And we have to change how we're working so that we can keep up with this ever-increasing demand at the same time that our work was becoming increasingly more complex Uh um, because our architecture was changing, our data management was changing. There were significant technological changes that all happened at that same time because really the whole world pivoted away from mainframes. In that same time window. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so there was just a lot happening in the five-ish years. Yeah, that's right. Um, they kind of mandated that as business people working in a technology-fueled company and technologists, we had to think about our work very, very differently. I, that's so true. Um, and the whole uh, Y2K thing, I had... I had forgotten about it, but um, you, you reminded me that that was a huge, a huge deal for for banks and other uh, programmers. So um, I huge. think that that probably, yeah. along with internet commerce, fueled the whole the whole scene. And along at about that same time, and you mentioned a couple of these a moment ago, but there were several theories of project management that occurred in the mm-hmm. early part of the 21st century, including waterfall, rapid prototyping, spiral, incremental or stage delivery and evolutionary delivery. So was the Agile Manifesto the culmination or combination of these new theories? I think it just, honestly, when you read it, it really looks like they're taking bits and pieces of each, right? Mm-hmm. So like rapid prototyping is very clearly in our Agile um, manifesto and in our Agile practices is in incrementals all over the place. An evolutionary approach to the product management as well as the technical solution, right? So each of these um, are kind of uh, brought together, knitted together and transformed mm-hmm. to a degree in Agile because none of them are brought over pure so, for instance, rapid prototyping. Mm-hmm. We've gone away from rapid prototype, prototyping, right? We now talk about the minimum viable product. Yes. Because right. what we discovered was that prototyping gave us a limited set of information. But if we do a minimum viable product, so it meets the entire stack top to bottom, mm-hmm. and a customer can actually touch it and play with it and work with it, right? That gives us a lot more information. That's right. Especially about the customer experience, its feasibility, its scalability, it, you know, et cetera. And is this, a, is this a feature that this customer will actually pay for, that they Absolutely. want? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so it, the, the thought process of, of rapid prototyping has been retained, but how we execute that has changed into the minimum viable product. Right. 
That's, um, that's a good point. Uh, and another bit of thinking that I think you used the phrase knitted together. And, um, I love that term of a phrase. I got to work that into a conversation. <laughs> So, I use that a lot. That comes from my IT architecture days. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> because we have to knit together all these technologies so that they play nice and they work together. Yeah. I, it's a I nice visual, thing. yeah, it's just a yeah, visual I, way of expressing it. I say flange together from my <laughs> days in the chemical industry. But anyway. See, um, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So with the time we've got left, what do you see as possibly the start of the next generation of project management? What will Agile ultimately lead us all to? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those people who can see into the future, uh, but I, I'm really intrigued by where we're going. I mean, it seems like, and we talked about this in another podcast, the debate of in the Agile manifesto, do we mean software as pure software or do we mean software as a product? Mm-hmm. It seems like that debate's been pretty much settled on the main software as a product. Mm-hmm. And because the door has been kind of kicked open now and we're using Agile outside of the software world. Okay. And I really think because of that, I'm seeing a lot more conversations around what is product mean and what are features and how do we organize not just the work around deliver, delivering product and features and doing so in a way that is um, timely to market, delivers high quality and delights our customers. Right. Um, but how do we need to restructure the way we think about the org chart and how we organize people? Mm-hmm. Um, and all these are kind of scaling questions. As more and more organizations are looking at scaling, Mm -hmm. which remember scaling only happens when we say yes, we mean software as a product Mm -hmm. Right. in the Android. That's really the only way it can happen outside of where pure software, Microsoft kind of like helps, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it is Starting some really exciting conversations, some of what we've talked about is how do we manage people, how do we hire people, how do we construct teams, you know, does the team interview people to come in instead of the manager interviewing candidates. You know, it's really changing the way people are starting to think about how they bring in people, how they grow the people in their organization, develop the people in their organization. And like I said, I think ultimately it's going to change how we think about org charts and maybe not be specialized along technical aptitudes like HR and legal and IT, etc. Mm-hmm. But maybe start organizing around the product that we support and create for the company. Um, I, 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 there's a lot, kind of a lot of conversations going around that productizing mm-hmm. is productizing is a word we hear all the time now talking about productizing the organization right. Um, right i think that's really kind of fascinating and that could have some real significant changes to how we invest in work mm-hmm. which could which would definitely impact how we deliver the work and how agile continues to evolve I think it's going to be a really fascinating next 10 years or so um, 
as we evolve through that and probably some other big questions. Well, and, you know, for somebody who says they're not very good at predicting the future, that sounded not just good, but darned reasonable to me. <laughs> we'll have to check it in 10 years and see yeah, how we'll, uh, But, yeah, we'll put this in a time capsule and come back to it. So, I'm afraid of the results. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll come back in a we'll decade. See, never know. Out. I okay. think, though, ultimately, you know, what we've got after our interview with Ren today is a better understanding of the background of all kinds of different project management techniques. And as a result, we're all of us in a better position to advocate for Agile and talk intelligently about its advantages with those who scoff at its uses outside of code writing or dismiss it as merely the latest business fad. Well, Agile. and hopefully, talk, sorry, but also hopefully talk about it in a way that doesn't demean traditional project management. Right. Not a doubt. They're, they're complementary. There are there are pros and cons to each one. Neither one fits all solutions, right? And, and and so there's there should be a very strong mutual respect. Absolutely. So if you are going back to the pyramids or up through Y2K, um, you know we all we all stand on the shoulders of giants and the people who, who came before us, without a doubt. Now, for those of you who would like to read more about this topic, or if you'd like to listen to past episodes of the Guardian podcast, you can do so by visiting Ren's website, which is www.renmelberg.com. Please come back, back next, week. next week. Be sure, Be sure and follow Ren on Twitter and join, and us, join us again next, next time for another, for another edition of the Guardian, Guardian podcast with Ren Melberg.